BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. When you're feeling lonely, perhaps the ubiquity of the experience is cold comfort. But a recent study found that 36% of Americans reported dealing with serious loneliness, including more than 60% of young adults and 50% of mothers of young children. Kristen Ratke's new book, Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness, is a meditation that seeks out the roots of these feelings in our society while also narrating an intensely personal journey. This book is unlike others. It's a graphic novel with the heart of a memoir and the bones of nonfiction. What brings us together? What keeps us apart? How do we become vulnerable with each other and find the community that keeps us healthy and sane? That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Author Christian Radke's new book, Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness, turns around being alone from every angle to look at its many facets. She seeks out the biological underpinnings of loneliness, the archetypes that structure our emotions, and the particular American conditions that seem to hold us apart from each other that we desperately want to reach out. A combination of graphic nonfiction and memoir, CQ journeys through history from TV sitcom to primate research lab in search of an answer to a deceptively simple question. What's the purpose of loneliness? Welcome, Kristen Radke. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So happy to have you. And, you know, I just want to say this book isn't dour. I mean, it's not quite a romp either, to use the book reviewing term. <laughs> um, but it's it's filled with, you know, different kinds of stories of humans making sense of themselves and others through media and technology. And one of the most fascinating little mini stories um, are your reflections on this particular machine of emotional coercion created by one Charlie Douglas. And I want people to hear what it is. You can almost hear the operator pressing the buttons on, you know, the laugh box. Um, totally. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think what's really interesting about that is that, you know, Suburban Sprawl was kind of the first time that people, uh, that American entertainment became centered around private consumption. So like folks were getting television sets at home and were going less regularly to the theater. And then, you know, this particular contraption, you know, if you could actually mm-hmm. see it in front of you, right? I mean, it actually literally had like buttons on it, right? And laugh, yes. laughs would come out. And there was like they named the laughs different things. Like there was one called housewife giggles. And then there were some that were called like guffaws. And there, there was like a whole range of types of laughter that they were trying to create a very like encompassing full room of people laughing. 
So, you know, generally speaking, I think people think of laugh tracks as sort of like a garbage part of television. (laughs) Um, Yes, totally. It's like annoying. Yeah, but you don't actually interpret it that way. I mean, I think that it serves like a real biological value, which is that scientists have, you know, studies have shown that we're much more likely to laugh when we're around other people. I mean, I think anyone who's like seen a movie with friends or has gone to the public theater can attest to you kind of give in to the collective experience of laughter. And so I feel to, to me, I feel like the laugh track kind of replicates that feeling and kind of tricks us into believing we're a part of a collective rather than just, you know, being alone on our couch. Is, is that a bad thing? I mean, great question. I think that's kind of, I would love to hear what you think. I mean, for me, when I was watching sitcom reruns as a kid, I think I learned a lot from the laugh track about what I was supposed to think and feel. Like I was just a, you know, a 10 year old dummy who didn't know, he didn't, who didn't get the jokes, who had kind of no idea what life was like. And not that sitcoms are always the most accurate representation of that, but it kind of gave me kind of a clue to a cultural consciousness I was about to be entering as an adult. Where, where did you grow up as a 10 year old dummy? I grew up as a 10-year-old dummy in a very rural town in Wisconsin. Like what what kind of town was it? I Well, I can say now I'm actually speaking to you from uh, the guest room at my parents' house in Surring, Wisconsin, which is um, a town of a couple of thousand people. There's a supper club that everyone goes to on Friday night, and that's really what happens uh, here. Wait, but by supper club, do you mean like a place where they serve one type of food? Like, what do you, what do you when I think of a supper so club, a supper, I think of like a cool yeah. San Francisco, like. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not like that. The a supper club here is like lots of deer heads on the walls. There's like a handful of um, different, many kinds of meats on the menu. And then there's like a large, very large bar that people kind of gather around. But I, it's a place that I love here because it's a community gathering space, which is, as we know, in America are getting fewer and farther between. You know, and it's funny because, you know, I grew up in a similar kind of rural town, but in Washington state. And mm. I was also felt lonely out there at times. And what my solution seems to be the same solution you had, which was to get a computer with a modem. Yes. I mean, the, the Internet. I, so I was kind of coming into young adulthood right when the Internet was becoming a thing. Like I had that, you know, that dial up modem that made those crazy noises. But that was like my favorite sound because it meant I was logging on to the Internet, which was just like this expansive space full of strangers, which was so exciting. And did it actually make you feel less lonely when you dialed up to what, you know, the Internet service or that you were using at the time? I think so. I mean, I, I became kind of, there was like this subset of the internet at the time where um, it was a lot of times the part that I was involved in was like young teenage girls who were like making personal websites. And I get, we didn't call them blogs yet, but they were basically blogs where we just posted completely banal, stupid things about our lives and then designed them. I mean, it's probably one of the reasons I became an artist was because I was just designing things for the internet. And I spent so much time and energy focused on like what I was presenting online, even though I'm sure no one was reading it, but it made me feel like I was a part of something. And did you actually like, do you remember the things that you wrote? Do you think it was really, truly banal stuff or do you think oh, you were yeah. actually moved? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure it was like humiliating. Like the writer Gia Tolentino writes about this in her book and she she talks about how she can. She was able to find her like teenage blog, and I thank God that that I was not able to find mine because I probably would have just had to hide in a hole forever. I'm sure it was like Renee didn't sit with me at lunch, and like I'm so sad and lonely, and I'm sure it was just really atrocious. 
I can tell you that I was such a dork that my I had two blogs at that time, one which was about UCLA basketball, uh, and the other uh, was about my completely failed attempts at meditating for even like one minute. Um, so I, I, okay, that's still way more evolved than where I was at. So I'm very impressed. Um, so through time, obviously, we live in a different era of the internet now. Um, we live in mm. an era of social media in which, you know, that type of mm. writing still exists, but it's it's more um, image driven. Um, you're also yeah. an illustrator. What's your relationship now to kind of the new sense of social media? Well, I mean, it's complicated. I think that it's really easy for us to sort of damn social media and say it's the root of all our problems and we're all getting more narcissistic and isolated because of social media. And of course, on the one hand, social media, we've seen it do a lot of damage to our understanding of truth and the news and sometimes our relationships to each other because we can be really, really mean on social media in a way we wouldn't be in real life. But on the other hand, I do feel like it's just another tool and it's up to us to use it responsibly. You know, when the um, when the radio was invented and then when the telephone was invented, there were all of these scathing editorials about how like the radio is going to keep us distracted forever and we're never going to, you know, we're never going to approach each other without that distraction. And then the telephone was going to keep us from being able to communicate in person. Like there, we kind of lament every new technological advancement as if it's the end of everything. And I mean, social media might well be the end of everything, but it also might just be kind of part of this churn that we're, we're on. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, I, personally struggle with in the sort of just another tool is that there's another kind of tool um, that you also mm -hmm. discuss in the book, uh, which is guns. Um, yes. And the the sense that, you know, many of the same people who would say uh, about guns that they're like very specifically a bad kind of technology might mm. say about social media. Well, it's just another mm. tool. And it's it's actually a very difficult thing to pull apart. Like, you know, does the tool shape our behavior in ways that we don't want it to? Yeah. It's like a chicken or egg situation, right? Or like, are we just using this tool to enact the bad behavior we've always held inside of us? Or is it like enhancing and complicating that further? Yeah. Where did you land with that though? I mean, I, I mean, I'm like a, I'm staunchly no gun, like anti-gun. I think no one should have a gun. I come from a place where a lot of people have guns and which I find to be quite painful. And, and my relationship sometimes with people from where I come from are more painful because of that. I mean, to me, I think that weapons are another way that we separate ourselves from each other, perhaps the most extreme possible way that we can separate ourselves from one another because creating bonds and relating to one another relates almost exclusively to trust. If we can't trust each other, we can't form meaningful bonds. We can't really connect. And having a weapon is like saying, it's like a, it's like projecting, I don't trust anyone around me or I don't trust people who are different from me. That's how I often perceive it. Yeah. You know, I, I want to talk a little bit about stories that you've heard, because obviously you through mm. time talk to, you know, you tell you tell your friends, hey, I'm writing a book about loneliness. And they start telling you about times uh, when they're lonely. Yeah. What, are, what are a couple of those that really stuck out to you? Well, that was really one of the most moving parts of making this book to me was that at the beginning of the project, I would kind of casually mention, hey, I'm working on this book about loneliness. And without fail, people would start to say to me, let me tell you, oh, the loneliest I ever felt was X. And it was like that framing of, and it would, they were, the responses were so visceral and 
I started thinking about that, like that must really mean something that we're, we can kind of recall that pain or that feeling of isolation. So crystal clear. And I loved what I, I mean, some of them were very specific. A lot of people talked about being pregnant or the time after they gave birth as a really, really lonely time. A lot of people talked about moving to a new place, which is of course about recalibrating your whole relationship to the world and to where you live, which makes total sense. And then some of them were really banal. And that was also beautiful. Like someone talked about how they had a birthday party in seventh grade and only one person came, which is, I think, a kind of like childhood humiliation we can all relate to. Ugh, and I'm, then I'm cringing <laughs> just hearing it right now. Yeah. I know. And then someone else talked about how after college he was working at a, a bakery in his in this college town, and he was just in, in a really lonely time. He had just broken up with someone, and right, one right. night he, he had to clean up the um the the soup that had spilled and it got in this electrical outlet, and he just had to keep cleaning up the soup that was in the electrical outlet over what? and over and getting these little shocks. I'm so excited. I, you know, it's, uh, it, it's fascinating because I think some of the stories are very deep and others are more like, um, you know, just th- these moments that, um, that almost could have passed somebody by, but they stopped to reflect on how alone Absolutely. they were at that moment. Absolutely. Yeah, because some of them are very extreme. Some of them are talking about being a refugee and coming to a new country. Another person is talking about how she moved to America the week before 9-11 happened. And suddenly she's in this new place and she's watching these horrible images on TV. And those were, you know, those are the kinds of moments that are burned into most people's brains who have experience in America. But then that's that right next to that really banal, small example, I think is kind of what makes it so beautiful. We're talking with Kristen Radke. Her new book is Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. And we want to hear from you. I mean, what did you learn about loneliness during the pandemic? I mean, has loneliness, though we oftentimes don't want to feel it, has it ever served you? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. Of course, we're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at KQED. Org. Zora tweets, back in 1860, how many people ordered ticker tape transceiver systems to fight loneliness? The first kind of email. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Are you lonesome tonight? Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Christian Radke. Her new book is Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. And we do want to hear from you. What did you learn about loneliness during the pandemic? And give us a call at 866-733-6786, or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. You know, I wanted to talk about sort of gender and loneliness, the gendered components of, of how people experience this um, kind of differently. And one of the ways that you get at this um, is is through your own marriage. Um, can you talk a little bit about the sort of fissures that we were talking about guns earlier, fissures that guns opened up um, in your own marriage? I mean, I think what's interesting to me that I discovered about, you know, 
committing to partnering with someone for the rest of your life is that kind of the decisions they made before they met you somehow really impact that that marriage going forward. And he he was someone who grew up also in a culture where a lot of people had guns and he had bought guns when he was much younger. He'd never used them. He never even had them in his home. It was just like kind of part of his family. And I was, I found that to be over time that just felt like such a betrayal to me. And, and it wasn't so much that he had done it. I think I was kind of bringing with all of this baggage I had about guns in my own hometown to it. And it felt like kind of like this irreparable divide, even though his his feelings about guns are quite similar to mine now. It's interesting. Why why did that feel irreparable to you? I uh, you know I mean I I mean I'm still married to him, so it doesn't feel irreparable. <laughs> but it does feel it does feel like sometimes it's this thing of like I can't understand why you would have made this choice because it feels so antithetical to what we believe and how and how and what really what we owe one another, which is I think to care for each other and to not arm ourselves against each other. You know, it's interesting because in in the book, you have this amazing portrait of that. I'm not sure if it's closeness or it's apartness. You're kind of doing dishes mm. next to each other. And it's really beautiful. Um, and I wondered when you when you drew that, were you thinking like this is a portrait of our togetherness, us doing these dishes? Or is it a portrait of, you know, a silent couple stewing silently and doing the dishes because <laughs> they've opened up this distance between themselves? I think it's both. I mean, I think that's the thing that has surprised me most about marriage is that it's kind of always that push and pull. Like you're always, you're, you're bonded together in this life and this decision that you've made, but you're also individual people. And I think that's one of the things that, especially in media that we forget, we sort of see marriage or partnership as sort of the solution to loneliness. And like you live happily ever after, and then you're never lonely again. I mean, there's songs that say those very similar words, but that's of course not true. Like as individual people, there's really no way to feel completely emotionally or spiritually fulfilled by another person because they're not exactly the same as you. Yeah. Do you think that the feeling of loneliness um, that different genders feel is the same, or do you think it has uh, different components based on you know how someone sees their gender identity? Well, statistically, and like the, the, I should say the research is very binary, which is a big problem. And I hope that that will change. But thus far, the research has been shown that men tend to make relationships young in their life and maintain those relationships throughout their, their lives. Whereas women make those relationships in, in when they're young and then continue to develop new relationships as they get older, which means that statistically women often have stronger social circles when they're middle-aged and later than men do because men have not acquired more people as they age. Yeah, guilty, man. Um, <laughs> let's um, let's um, bring in Kathy from uh, San Francisco. Hi, Kathy. Welcome to the show. Hi, welcome. <laughs> Good morning. Um, there's so many different parts of loneliness. Um, one thing for me is being pregnant for the third time mm-hmm. and being um going to all my appointments by myself for my first time. And it's been lonely, but also invigorating and also empowering and giving me a different perspective of women that do it by themselves all the time. Um, so it's Because in your previous pregnancies, you had people going with you before the restrictions from COVID. Yeah, my partner, my partner would come all the time. Or my son got to find out the gender or sex of the baby. But this time we decided we're not going to find out the sex because 
my partner hasn't been there. So it's been really challenging at times. There's been times where I've cried in the car after my 19th progesterone shot in my butt alone. But it's also been super empowering, and I feel like it has made me a stronger individual and also so appreciative of what I have. Oh, man. Thanks for sharing that, Kathy. And I'm sorry about the progesterone shots in the butt. That doesn't sound fun. <laughs> um, you know, it, it brings That's up a... That's what we do. <laughs> Thank you for procreating on behalf of uh, all the rest of humanity. Um, um, I, I wanted to ask you, Kristen, um, you know, there are parts of loneliness that can be empowering. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, Kathy's kind of talking about the distinction between loneliness and solitude. And I think sometimes we conflate those two things, but they're very different. I mean, loneliness is often not even about whether you're alone. It's about how you feel about being alone. So while Kathy is feeling sadness that someone she loves is missing out on that experience, she's also feeling the incredible fulfillment of being, of, of being able to do those things on her own. Yeah. Let's bring in David from San Francisco. Hi, David. Hi. Hey, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for I, calling in. Yeah, you're welcome. I kind of have a question, I believe. Uh, so for me personally, like, I mostly feel alone when I'm around, like, a lot of people, say, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But I never feel alone when I'm out in the woods all by myself or just backpacking, like, three days out from something. Is there something there to that that it's – uh? that it's about not engaging with human beings that are all around you uh, that can make it seem lonelier or feel lonelier? Yes, totally. So everyone is born with a specific threshold. This is like encoded into our DNA. There's nothing we can do about it. But everyone is uh, born with a certain threshold for loneliness and for isolation. And which is why I think some of us, like it's, it's kind of related to introversion, extroversion, but a little more complicated than that. But basically we all need a different amount to feel full, kind of in the same way we all need different amounts of food to feel full and to feel fulfilled. So it, so you're a person who probably needs less social interaction in order to feel fulfilled. And also when we're in a setting, when we're surrounded by people who we're not connecting with, that's actually one of the most isolating feelings I think a lot of us feel. Yeah. You talk about that when you first moved to New York. Yeah. I mean, I think there is kind of something um, shocking and there's also something kind of beautiful and romantic about being alone in a big city. But it's also I think it can also be a challenge to be like, how do I fit into this place? Yeah. We're talking with Kristen Radke. Her new book is Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. What'd you learn about loneliness during the pandemic? And, you know, do you feel like there's a difference between being alone and loneliness? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I wanted to talk a little bit with you, Kristen, about the American context here. Um, that, mm. you know, do, do we find that the sort of way and rates of sort of loneliness that Americans feel are the same as people across the world or is it different? It's different. Every country has a different country to study loneliness, all have different barometers um, or all have different levels of loneliness. So America is not the loneliest country in the world, but it is one of the top. Like uh, 
England is also very lonely. Certain Scandinavian countries also very lonely. Japan is also very lonely statistically. Um, and those things change a lot over time, depending on um, kind of the government at the time and what the politics are like at the time. The, like there, it's not, it's not a, um, it's not a flat line. But I think that in America, we do have a kind of like this sort of individualism is kind of coded into the ideology of America. Like the cowboy sensibility is a huge part of our sort of origin story. We love outsiders in America, like the underdog stories. And we kind of prioritize that, you know, certainly politically, like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps is a big part of the rhetoric we hear since childhood, which is, I think, a, a flawed and kind of dangerous way of thinking because we do need each other to survive. And you think that essentially that American um, uh, valorizing of a certain kind of individualism makes it less likely that people bond together in the sort of durable, meaningful ways that would actually make them feel less lonely? I do think so. I mean, I think that we prioritize like one of the ways in which we we are trained to feel successful is if we're self-sufficient and self-sufficiency is a total myth. Like you can't do anything on your own, uh, like a whole chain of people help to get you to that place, even if you're only kind of interfacing with yourself. But we also in America, I think, really prize space and putting space between yourself and another person, like having a big yard or, or a, a sometimes like acreage in where I come from is like a big mark of success. And it means it's like a success to not be able to see your neighbors. I think actually where I grew up, the, the zoning designation was actually rural estate. <laughs> It'd be like oh, a vinyl fence manufacturer on a rural estate is great. Um, <laughs> I, you know, one of the things you do, though, in tying together um, this sort of American sense of individualism and loneliness, you actually add like a third component, which is essentially mm -hmm. uh, uh, this sense that totalitarianists mm -hmm. want to use loneliness as sort of the fuel for their movements. Yeah. So Hannah Arendt in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, which is as relevant today as it was when she wrote it in the 70s, is um, a, a really a scathing um, kind of takedown of isolation. And she studies how countries that are living under totalitarian regimes have the highest rates of loneliness in the world, because we're in a place where we literally can't trust our neighbors because we can't be open about how we think and feel. So so connecting with some another person isn't just me saying, hey, Alexis, how's your day going? Like, how's the weather? It's about us being able to talk honestly and openly about what we truly believe. And if we can't do that, um, we we really are kind of totally screwed in our ability to make meaningful contact. Yeah. I mean, one of the most fascinating pages in this book, I think, in this kind of small way is you have this page with uh, a kind of uh, a house with a Trump sign on a fence. Mm, mm. And then there's Aaron's book like sitting there. But then you actually draw in this little tangle of iPhone headphones um, and a set <laughs> of keys. And I actually yeah. thought it was just such an interesting th that to me felt like it was telling maybe a different story. I wasn't sure what story that was telling against the idea of a sort of, you know, uh, Trumpist movement. Well, it's like this has all become so normalized, right? Like the way, like Arendt writes that um, isolated men are powerless by definition, because if we're isolated from one another, we're sort of, we get stuck in kind of our worst form of thinking. Like we all need to be able to bounce our emotions, our our emotions and our thoughts off another person as a sounding board. That's really, really important because we're not always the most rational people when we're not 
able to connect with others. Like we've all had crazy thoughts in the middle of the night and you kind of need to touch out with your friend the next day and be like, what are we thinking about this? So that they can kind of pull you back to earth. But if we're, if we're isolated from one another in those ways, actually our brains are, the longer we're in a state of isolation, the more we're likely to perceive a stranger as a threat. So it's called entering a state of hypervigilance. And the longer that we're in that state of chronic isolation or chronic loneliness, the less open we are to even interacting with or engaging with other people, which means it gets more and more difficult the longer we're in that stage to start developing meaningful bonds. You know, just listening to you talk, it, one of the things that's been very interesting, both in the in the book and in this conversation, is that science for you is a real touchstone. Like you're not trying, yeah, you're, you're yeah. really trying to understand these emotions through the lens of science quite quite often. I mean, um, can you tell me more about sort of your relationship to the, to that science? Well, I just think it's fascinating. I mean, if I had had my way, this book would just be like a book of science facts about loneliness. I mean, it's all I wanted to think about. I just got, I got kind of addicted to learning about it. And I learned things that I never would have imagined were possible. Like, for example, that scientists have found that loneliness is contagious, that when we're, when we're lonely, we're more likely to self-isolate as sort of a self-protection mechanism, which is completely the wrong thing to do. When we're feeling lonely, we need to reach out, not withdraw. But when we withdraw, we isolate the people closest to us. So there's actually studies that show that when one person is lonely, they can transmit loneliness up to three degrees removed from them. Hmm. What, do you, what do you make of that? I mean, it makes total sense to me when I think about it. Like when I think about times I've had a close friend go through a period of loneliness or depression, I felt rejected by them, even though it had really nothing to do with me. And is it quite possible that I then made someone else feel that way? It seems it seems pretty likely. Hmm. Um, one of our listeners, Jeff, writes in, um, I was raised by a single mom who I feel suffered from a lot of loneliness. I have <laughs> heard of carried shame in families, but wonder if there's carried loneliness I always had fun by myself and do now, but worry about others being lonely a lot. Thanks for that, Jeff. That's such a beautiful, I know. Uh, that's such a beautiful phrase and like also a beautiful tribute to his mom. Yeah. I mean, I do. I mean, there's certainly like, I mean, we've learned a lot about inherited trauma. I think it seems quite likely that loneliness works in the same way. I don't know if we've seen studies about that, but because, because, because we all have that different biological threshold, if his mother was predisposed to loneliness, it seems quite likely that other people in the family are as well. That's interesting. Where, where do you see yourself on the sort of continuum of needing um, needing other people versus wanting to be? <laughs> I think I'm a pretty much a needing other people kind of person, which isn't to say I don't need breaks to kind of like step back and be inside my own head because I do. But I think I have come to realize that I am at my best when I feel really a part of a community, which for me has been a big part of the pandemic. I've become so much more invested in my community than I was before. And it, it's causing me to think like, what was my problem before that I didn't make this a priority? Mm -hmm. Are you sticking with it now that things have been loosening up? I am. I mean, I know my neighbors in a way I didn't before. And it's like, which is just totally bonkers. Like the fact that we can live on a street with someone, you can share a wall with someone and not know their name. I mean, that just feels so antithetical to what it is to be a human person because biologically we need each other to survive. So when we actually, when we feel lonely, our brain is responding to loneliness in the same way it's responding to a physical threat because in the grand scheme of human existence, you know, as we were like early humans kind of wandering around and living in caves, we really did need each other to survive. 
five and a very basic fundamental level. So all of those stress hormones that we felt when we were alone, because we were in danger, we still feel. And so it's very important that we act on them because those stress hormones build up. And another really startling thing about the research was discovering that the longer you are in a state of chronic loneliness, the more dangerous it becomes physically. People who are chronically lonely die sooner than people who are not. Um, I wanted to read you one comment from John. Um, John writes, uh, I lost my wife of 35 years a little over three years ago. Mm -hmm. My peers in bereavement groups, my grief counselors, and my psychologists almost universally concur that the loss of our spouses made us more lonely than anything else in our lives, even if we are among family and friends. And COVID just made it worse. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you find this to be true in your research? And the, the question that I would maybe append to this is sort of the difference between loneliness kind of at different stages of life. Yeah, so definitely that seems to me quite true. I'm so sorry for your loss. Often when we center our lives around another person and that person is gone, we have to rethink our relationship to the world and also our relationship to ourselves because our, our life was so filtered through another person. So in terms of, of Alexis, your question about aging, we loneliness statistically spikes at three times in our lives, our late 20s, our mid 50s, and our 80s, which when you think about those times makes a lot of sense. In our late 20s, a lot of times we're making some transitions in our lives. Maybe we're moving for a job, something like that. In our mid 50s, maybe we have kids that are moving away or we're kind of coming closer to retirement. And in our 80s, a lot of people that we love are gone. So it, it makes sense to me that we that we kind of go through those moments of transition. And consistently I heard when I talked to people about loneliness, moments of transition and loss are, are some of the loneliest periods in our lives. Yeah. We're talking with Kristen Radke. Her new book is CQ, A Journey Through American Loneliness. What'd you learn about loneliness during the pandemic? And has loneliness ever actually served you or at least alone time? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. We'll be back with more after the break. Maybe tomorrow. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas, actual speeds vary. Coming up in our next hour with Mina Kim, according to a new poll out of UC Berkeley, 47% of likely voters would vote to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. We'll talk about the recall and hear your views. And later in the hour, Mina talks to poet Jonah Mixon Webster about his new collection, Stereotype. It centers around his life experience as a black queer man in Flint, Michigan. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We are at KQED Forum.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and we're talking with Kristen Radke. Her new book is Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. Um, and uh, the listeners out there have had a lot of uh, comments and feelings about the difference between being alone <laughs> and feeling lonely, and I'll just give you a few of them. Um, Pete tweets, Please differentiate between being alone and feeling lonely. As Blaise Pascal said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. I disagree with Blaise Pascal, but I take the point. Um, Noel tweets, we also need to praise the benefits of chosen solitude, which is related. Uh, John also writes, what does the author think about the difference between loneliness, which I don't like, and solitude, which I do? Sometimes to me, it is just a state of mind. If I'm thinking I'm lonely, it makes me sad. And if I realize I'm getting some solitude time, I'm glad. You know, it, it's interesting because um, it, I think people do sometimes have this sense that it's almost like a switch, like, like, a, like mm. a light switch, that they could just sort of be like, why don't I just think I'm not lonely and I won't be? Well, it is actually, it's kind of true that we're actually, we are only lonely when we think we are, because we can spend months or years alone and be totally satisfied with that. If we're in that state of mind, there's a massive difference between solitude and loneliness. And it's a, it's, um, it is really important to remember that loneliness has absolutely nothing to do with the time you spend alone. You can spend 100% of your time with other people and be overwhelmingly lonely. And you can spend almost no time with other people and feel completely personally fulfilled. So part of that is that biological threshold I was talking about before. Everyone has different levels of that kind of satisfaction. But I think the other part is about um, kind of where you're at in your frame of mind. I can spend a great deal of time alone if I'm really into a creative project and I feel like it's really working and moving. But the second I feel bored or I feel frustrated, I start to kind of feel that kind of itch to be connected with another person and kind of pull myself out of that uncomfortable space. Mm. A listener uh, tweets, we were talking about transitions um, before the break. In the beginning of transitioning from female to male, I was in this awkward limbo stage of extreme loneliness. I didn't fit in with the typical binaries of my friend groups. However, I'm happy I went through that loneliness because I needed to find myself alone. And I think one question out of that is, are, are there some things that we actually can't do with other people? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think that's a beautiful example of of feeling you need to feel who you are and you're kind of entering that stage sometimes by yourself. You can't always filter that through another person. And that is so much a part of a personal journey. So I think absolutely there are things that we need to move through alone. I think sometimes grief can be a part of that. There are parts of grief that are very communal and very collective. Um, really and there are cool some that we have to feel on our own. Let's bring in um, Sean from Healdsburg. It's about the social capital index um, put out by the Joint Economic Committee and um, mm. how that relates to the actual loneliness of people in those states that, that rank high. Um, you know, the, the top five are Utah, Minnesota, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, and Vermont, whereas California is number 40 in the index, mm. way down there. And is there any correlation between social capital um, and, and loneliness? Great, super complicated question. I mean, I, I will do the caveat to say I'm not a scientist, I'm not a social scientist or a psychologist, but from my studies, I did find often that people who are more geographically removed from one another are more likely to feel high levels of loneliness. And I, without, without kind of making um, political assumptions, I think also we sometimes see um, a kind of a more volatile political environment in places where people are, are quite 
isolated from one another, who don't interact with a lot of people who have different life experiences than they do. Quick follow-up also from a, a listener comment. Rakesh writes, which country is the least lonely? Like we went through the the most lonely are sort of like a bunch of rich countries, Japan, mm-hmm. some Scandinavian spots, the U.S. Um, but what about least lonely country? I would have to double check that stat, but I but consistently wealthy countries rank loneliness, loneliest mm-hmm. um, on, the, on the scale because we often people who um, can afford to live alone are in wealthier countries. Living alone often statistically does create higher levels of loneliness, even though um, it can be really wonderful to live alone. I'll say as someone who used to live alone, but there was there is a certain kind of isolation that is involved in that. People who live alone actually die seven years sooner statistically than people who share their homes with others. Mm. Um, and, and wealthier countries, people live longer. So you're more likely to kind of end up on your own without a lot of people that you've loved for a long time. What? But so there's that wealthy country problem and then countries who are in really unstable um, political and um, environments and people who are at war, uh, countries who are at war also ex- in, uh, experience extreme levels of stress yeah. and loneliness. And one imagines like low, that's a very low trust environment when you're sort of at war. Exactly. Uh, that kind of thing. Um, let's bring in Roger from Alameda. Hi. Um, I wanted to start out by saying everybody's different. So what I'm saying applies to me and people may fulfill themselves in different ways in terms of socialization. But um, I guess I would say I'm lucky. I'm able to feel very comfortable alone. I'm also comfortable being with people, and that's really kind of a joy. But my main point is this. In our society, so many people see fulfillment of their social needs, their ultimate social needs through a post-romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I have found that my close friendships are much more fulfilling from a social standpoint than romantic relationships. I'm quite a bit older, and I've kind of resigned myself. I probably am going to be giving up on this idea of romantic relationships, but please don't Mm. feel sorry for me. (laughs) I've got a lot of close friends, and I love talking to them, and it fulfills me uh, much more than all romantic relationships ever have. And that's just for me because, as I said, people are very different. But um, one more thing, the reason I feel so good in a close relationship with friends is because I can be completely open. I've got one friend down in San Luis Obispo. I call him all the time. We talk for an hour and a half, and I can tell that guy anything. And (laughs) most of the time when we talk about my faults or his, we end up laughing about it. So I just want to put a plug in for really close friendships, how fulfilling they can be for some people. Wow. Three cheers for close friendship. Thanks. uh, Yeah, absolutely. Kristen, go ahead. What What do you think about that? I mean, you're totally right. I mean, I think I think part of the problem with the way that we look at relationships in America and a lot of places, I mean, it's it's certainly not a, just an American problem, is that we see romantic relationships as the cure for all of this. When community is so much more than a family or a, than a, a, an interpersonal romantic relationship, a partnership, it's about much more far-reaching relationships and f- sometimes families of friends. I mean, I, I'll say that my friends consistently... Um, are my number one abatement for loneliness. So I completely relate to what you're saying. 
I knew that my neighbors had become basically like family during the pandemic when I could like find yeah. them in my backyard, like just scrolling on their phone by themselves. <laughs> and I'd be like, OK, all right, we can be all in the same space all together here. Um, Anna writes, um, I moved from a city to a rural community a few years ago. I still have deep, rich, long term friendships. I talk on the phone, text and video chat often with relatives and friends multiple times every day, but I don't see actual people for days. Is there research on the loneliness of physical solitude, even with profound relational connections? God, great question, Anna. Really great question. I totally relate. The same thing happened to me when I was in my 20s. I moved to a place where I didn't know anyone and all of my relationships were like on video chat and the phone and text. So I completely know that state that you're in. And the answer is yes. So another kind of startling thing that I discovered during the process of researching this book is the importance of human touch, which is something I'd really never considered. I grew up in the Midwest, like we kept our hands to ourselves. We're not big huggers. Like we're not very like physically affectionate people with our friends and family, at least not the family that I grew up in. And um, I talked to a lot of touch therapists who speak to the importance of touch. And it's actually something we really need to survive. Scientists call our need for human touch skin hunger, which is a really beautiful, bizarre, um, term and something I think so about all the time. Mildly creepy, but evocative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we need, you know, so basically um, physical touch creates endorphins and I'm not talking about sexual touch. I'm talking about platonic or familial touch. Um, and it, it's, and it's just like, ca like casual, you know, a pat on the shoulder, things like that do a lot to stimulate our brains and our um, sort of the positive hormones that keep us feeling fulfilled and moving forward throughout the day. Yeah. I also think of how people's needs for that are so different. Like my two kids are yes. totally different. One of them, one of my kids would be permanently affixed to me at all times. Whereas <laughs> the other is just sort of like, no, nah, I'm good. You know, I, yeah. I, you're over there. I can see you. Yeah. Totally, totally different. Um, kind of just basic levels of need uh, or, or hunger. Absolutely. I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's something I felt like I need to learn. I grew up in a place where we just didn't really touch each other. And I felt like I'm trying to make more active um, attempt in my adult life to be a little more f physically affectionate with my friends. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing that's come across in a lot of the calls and, and comments is um, everyone is like, oh, I love being alone, but I'm not I'm not lonely. And I'm, mm -hmm. I, no, 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 no loneliness. Yes, sometimes alone and, and I'm good with it. But no one is kind of saying, yeah, I'm just I'm lonely. And, I, and yeah. the, the question I have for you is, isn't there a purpose to loneliness? Yes, Bi like biologically loneliness is a very essential um, trigger that we have. It's a sensation that we have in the same way where we might feel hungry or thirsty, or we might you know, touch a hot surface and our body's telling us, pull your hand back because it hurts. You know, When we're hungry, we get food. When we're thirsty, we drink water. And when we're feeling lonely, it's, it's our body is telling us, you need to connect with someone. So we, I think the really important, um, the, the thing I learned most from, from the process of researching this project is when you feel that sense of loneliness, you should, it's your body telling you, you need something and you have to listen to that. Yeah. Um, couple other comments here. Um, Sarah tweets, the loneliest I've ever felt was during the last three years of my first marriage. Living in a home with someone who doesn't want to spend time with you is very isolating, similar to the idea mm -hmm. of being lonesome um, in a crowd. Is that one of the things that you've heard the most often when I was imagining what people told you about? I, I figured that might be one of them. 
Well, statistically, yes. So statistically, we um, it, it is true that according to surveys, people who are married experience lower levels of or of loneliness than people who are single. Yet, people who are who consider themselves in unhappy marriages are by far much lonelier than people who are single. Mm. So, when you're feeling the the person who's supposed to be closest to you and who's supposed to kind of be you know, your biggest support system when that relationship is severed, even before the relationship ends. I think that's um, really one of the loneliest moments that people can feel. Let's bring in Caleb from San Jose. Hey, Caleb. Hello. How's it going? Hi. Uh, I, I just wanted to bring up a story of a really good friend from high school that I have that it, he's a really popular and outgoing extroverted guy. And um, the reason is I often compared myself to him and mm-hmm. seeing that he had more friends than I did and being like, am I, does that mean I'm actually lonely or in questioning that for myself? Um, if it's okay to spend that much time alone. Mm-hmm. But then I heard yeah. one day about that. It's actually normal for, for people to have friends who have more friends than they do just because how the math works out on friends. Oh, right. Because there's like an extroverted person who connects with tons of people and lots of people know that person. And so, yeah. Yeah. So that's completely normal to be in that situation. So I just wanted to- Totally. Yeah, it's totally normal. I mean, I definitely have that friend who's like super outgoing and engages with everyone and has a bajillion friends. Like she has friends since she was like literally an infant baby, which I certainly have not been able to maintain relationships since I was an infant baby. But um, I think, you know, we, a lot of people are calling this like the summer of FOMO because people are vaxxed, hopefully vaxxed and uh, kind of going out in the world. And then suddenly you have this feeling of like, is everyone hanging out without me? Am I not invited to this thing? And that kind of creates that that kind of sense of um, fear or panic. And I think a lot of loneliness is feeling is feeling um, worried about being left out. Yeah. I think people know what FOMO means, but just in case, fear of missing out. Right? You know? <laughs> yeah. um, um, you know, one of the things that I've thought about a lot is the, the gender differences. You know, I've kind of gone at it mm. a, a couple of different ways. Um, and, and I want to talk briefly about your your own father and the way that you open the book. I mean, here was a man yeah. from your books telling was, was quite strict um, and seemed fairly closed to uh, a, a emotional intimacy. But then you started to mm-hmm. discover new things about about him. Yeah. Well, I think when you're a kid, you don't recognize that your parents are human people with like needs and desires and um, like hopes for themselves. And when I was an adult, I was talking to my uncle and he was telling me about how when my dad was a kid, he uh, spent a lot of time on ham radio, on amateur radio, which at the time was in Morse code. And he would stay up all night making what is called a CQ call, the letter C and Q. And basically you call out in Morse code, making a CQ call. And it's like saying, is there anyone out there? And anyone who's listening on the airwaves, which could be someone in the next town or on the absolute opposite side of the world can respond. And you can have a a complete conversation with a complete stranger. And over time, people became English speakers came to hear the word CQ, the letter CQ as CQ, which became the title of the book. And I just thought that that was um, so moving when I discovered that about my dad as a kid, because it was really the same thing that I was doing when I was on like my dial up internet at 12, 
trying to reach out to strangers, like in internet chat rooms and through my sad, pathetic blog. Like it was really, we were experiencing exactly the same thing decades apart. And what do you make of his, um, have you talked to him about it and been like, Dad, what did you what did you get? Because for, for people who don't really understand, you don't actually talk with the other people you connect with. Right. I mean, they just sort of you sort of write down like, oh, OK, I yeah, well, you do like you, you talk on Morse code. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I think it's made me feel much more empathetic towards my dad and has helped me realize that we have this really strong thing in common, which is that we've both been people who are reaching out since our childhood to to a, a larger world or attempting to connect with the larger world. And I, I know because I've stalked you on Instagram that you actually have, <laughs> have shown the book to your father, which begins yeah. with a dedication yeah. to him, but is actually maybe yeah. a little hard on him also. So what was his reaction? And do you feel like it's actually brought you closer together? I mean, my dad is probably my best friend. I mean, we're really, really close. And that only happened in adulthood, I think, because in childhood, he was, like I said, he was very strict and I just didn't, we didn't, we weren't able to connect, I think, until we were, until I was older and until I understood really how much we had in common. And he's a very generous reader. I mean, he really lets me get away with saying things. I'm sure he's, he's not thrilled that I'm saying, but he was very honored by the dedication. And really one of the greatest moments of my life was the, the very first day he was fully vaxxed. He flew to New York to see me and one copy of the book had a had come in the mail from the printer before he arrived and I was able to give him the book and he saw the dedication for the first time and it was just really special. How do you normally communicate with him? We talk on the phone a lot. Yeah. And do you do you um, video chat or are you just 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 in the years? More more phone people. We at the beginning of the pandemic we did a wine and cheese tasting sometimes on Zoom. But that was, you know, I, I think a lot of people's pandemic sort of rituals are are becoming harder to maintain as the world is opening up. Yeah. We've been talking with Kristen Radke. Her new book is Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. Thanks for coming on the show, Kristen. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. Yeah. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for a little bit of Akon and then another hour of Forum ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.